if you have a 15 years of journey uh, in a startup the first few years is hard because you know we all know that they you you tend to fail so you sur- you have to survive through that but when when you have a 15 year journey then you have more such you know uh um, near that moments and we've had those uh you know about 7 8 years back we've had those moments when we were not doing that well we probably weren't as close to death as people announced it to be but it is what it is right you feel that you're going to because somebody else tells you that you might be you know close to death you think you're close to death uh yeah so we think we are pretty solid survivors hi there i am rohan dharmakumar the host of first principles and the kens co-founder and ceo this is just our fourth episode but all of us at the ken have been stoked with the feedback from our listeners and subscribers i've read every single email message and tweet from you with feedback for us it would mean a lot to me if you rate our show on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you're tuning in from and also do hit follow or subscribe that will really help our show reach newer audiences and find its tribe this week i'm interviewing navin tiwari the co-founder and ceo of inmobi not just india's first unicorn but also one which birthed another unicorn of its own glance with over 15 years of surviving and innovating across products navin has built a multi billion dollar group of companies that chooses to play by its own rules often by rewriting them through his candid and reflective conversation navin takes us through his entrepreneurial journey and also lets his guard down about failures early mistakes and what it took to correct them in fact quite serendipitously the opening of this podcast is a foreshadowing of what comes later so without much ado let's get right to it we have with us navin tiwari the co-founder and ceo of inmobi and he's 30 minutes late and he has a very good explanation for why he's 30 minute late navin do you want to tell us well for once i could have blamed it on the bangalore traffic but that's not the case uh, i had a event at in our office where we were felicitating people who had spent 10 years with us and that was important and uh, you know when people spend a lot of time with you they speak very emotionally about and they come on the stage and you can't inter- interject that so that went on and there we had we have over 50 people that have just finished that and uh, wow. that took that took some time and uh, i have already spoken for a long period of time prior to this so this is uh, i am pretty warmed up for this conversation that's a great so even achieve. if i'm late i'm warmed up no for a ceo i'm sure that's like a very momentous and proud occasion to have as many as 50 people who've completed a decade with you uh in the organization yeah. uh how does it feel well it's you, rare i must tell you rare, that yeah. it's quite rare quite especially rare, yeah. in india especially in the tech startup space i've always believed i'll tell you this i've always believed 
uh, that if you want to build something long term, you have to essentially have people who stay. Builders are not the ones who come and go. Builders have to stay. They have to see. And then they can only build for you. And building takes long. It's not like one year or two years. And I think this notion of that we can build things in few, like, you know, sh short stint, that's not a true true thing. Now, I feel truly proud and, and fortunate to be having people who have spent so much time. Like, you know, over five years, we have people probably closer to 450 or 400, 500 people spend over five years. That's why we're able to build things and we're able to scale them. And I feel... I, we didn't design for it. It's happening. We're doing something right. And I yeah, feel very, very happy. Thanks. And on that note, let's go back to when you started your entrepreneurial journey. That was way back in 2007. I remember that. MCOJ. That's correct. Do you want to tell us what MCOJ was? If you had to explain it today in a single line pitch to a VC, what was MCOJ? Single-line pitch to a VC would be do not invest in it because it's not going to scale. It was in the space of SMS marketing, which it was terrible. I You're not giving you. us a pitch. What I'm was the one-line pitch? The one-line pitch was very simple. We are, we are building an SMS marketing platform. MCOJ was a search engine that operated via for, SMS. A search engine for deals. It was a search engine for deals. So in effect, we were trying to build a a marketing platform of deals on SMS because it was, otherwise there was no interactivity. How did it work? Uh, how did how, it work? Uh, it didn't work. That was the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> if it did, I probably would have a small business, by the way. Uh, it wouldn't have scaled beyond a point. It absolutely failed. It was utter. Like it was, it was um, crap. You went on to then rebrand and pivot that business into what became Inmobi, yeah. uh, which became India's first unicorn in 2011. Yeah. Then in 2019, you created a new organization from within Inmobi, which was called Glance, which became a unicorn within a year due to a lot of right things happening at the right time. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Then you bought a short video platform, Roposo. Is that how you pronounce it? That's correct. And I'd like to read out something which I think you've said. Glance and Roposo have spawned a category of live entertainment plus live commerce via the lock screen, which allows users to consume the internet very differently. What does this mean? There are two things here. One is Glance, one is Roposo. What we are doing with Glance is building a platform uh, on lock screen or surfaces. of it, Think of it as converting surfaces into smart surfaces. And, you know, we will all have with 5G, we will all have access to very highly active surfaces because of edge computing. And how Can you break you, that down for us? When you say surfaces right now, um, the way I understand glance is the surface is the smartphone screen. Lock screen. Do you have another more expansive definition of what a surface might be? Pick any, uh, pick any device, TV, for example. It has a surface, and it's not used today. It's shut for 95% of the time. Can we use, use that in a smart way that is effective for users? That's another way to think so about it. So a dark glass That's on correct. a device is what you see as the surface opportunity. Yes, and I think of that as, uh, as an opportunity to essentially create a new genre of content 
that can actually be used on all of those places. So therefore, you have two kinds of consumption. One is intent-driven consumption, where I exactly know what I want to do, whether it's TV or my phone, I can go in and use this. The other is to say, hey, I, I really don't know, but let me let the screen tell me what I should be consuming. And that's what Glance does. And it does so on all surfaces within a phone or outside of the phone, like television and few other places. Um, what is Roposo? Roposo is effectively a live platform, live stage. And, uh, you know, you had short video, uh, you know, scale up. Prior to that, you had, you know, YouTube kind of create video. You had, you know, Twitter create tweets. Uh, this is, all of these are form of content. And I fundamentally believe There's that live... name you're leaving out. Uh, short TikTok. Oh, yeah, it was started with that, which is short video. <laughs> All right. Uh, of course, TikTok created a short video space. And we said there is a there is a space uh, for new type of content, which is live. And that's what Roposo is going to go after. Uh, so we acquired a short video app, which was Roposo. But it was in the short video space. But we pivoted that immediately uh, into live. And that's what we've been working on today. We're one of the largest live players on the planet. Um, and... Uh, it's largely scale in India today, but will scale globally. So pull back, and what is the Inmobi group today? We are building an internet, uh, consumer internet platform with some of the most unique uh, consumer platforms, all innovative, very different. Um, we are into, as I said, surface computing. We are into live. We are into gaming, into weather. Uh, and it's backed by a very large advertising platform. So we understand how to really think about monetization very deeply. And we do this globally. You know, we, we're not just... We've had the success of building in Mobi globally. We've had the success of building Glance globally. So we're building this also globally out there. So, yeah, we are a consumer internet platform. How do you make your money? Is it largely entirely advertising? Yeah. Uh, if you think about this... Uh, we are experts in that, and we think that it's one of the biggest medium of monetization of any uh, digital platform. And yeah, we're going to use that as a primary way of doing it. Which of these should we call you? The survivor, the fundraiser, the pivoter? Um, is it the first one? The survivor? Yeah. Why is that? Well, you know, if you have a 15 years of journey uh, in a startup, the first few years is hard because, you know, we all know that they, you, you tend to fail, so you, you have to survive through that. But when, when you have a 15-year journey, then you have more such, you know... Uh, near-death moments. Near-death moments. And we've had those. Uh, you know, about seven, eight years back, we've had those moments when we were not doing that well. We probably weren't as close to death as people announced it to be, but it is what it is, right? You feel that you're going to, because somebody else tells you that you might be, you know, close to death, you think you're close to death. Uh, yeah, so we think we are pretty solid survivors. There was a description. But you, you ended up choosing three, which basically meant that my choice was a, amongst those three, yeah. Well, uh, let's go back to that question. Yeah. And if you had to pick a fourth option, which was not innovator. there, what would you? I think we've innovated throughout our mm -hmm. life in every dimension of whatever we've picked up. 
uh yeah have we not taken inspiration absolutely we have taken inspiration but we have really innovated all right so we have innovated to survive that's how i put it <laughs> as a journalist we find the tension in the survivor better than innovator because today the problem also is that all the tension you know surviving while innovating is a much more powerful story than innovating while surviving because today everyone says i'm innovating mm. right so when you say you're an innovator yes i mean that's um, you couldn't have gotten where you are today without innovating yep. but i think what you said firstly about surviving the multiple waves of technology multiple waves of business models i think that's much more yeah we won't die <laughs> i know that for sure all right it's But, like a test match right you're going you're not going to get out no matter yeah, what uh, i may have I'm slow i may have slow at yes see i i did i'm so bad uh you're saying you're terrible at something yeah i'm 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 terrible at sports analogies though i did understand this one <laughs> it's a cricket test match that's right right well you live in india <laughs> catch this one <laughs> Uh, one of our stories that we did on you had described what you're doing with glance etc as facebook in reverse facebook built a consumer app first that ended up in everyone's phones and then it built out its audience network to help advertisers monetize it inmobi is approaching this from the other direction it was a monetization company with an audience network and is now building a consumer app through glance and of course later through roposo is this an accurate very accurate thank you can we just get through this rapid fire set I'm of questions about fire, <laughs> how old is your company uh now turning 15 how many employees does inmobi have uh closer to about uh, well around 3000 what's your revenue like oh god <laughs> you try to slip that in <laughs> <laughs> Not going to fall for that one. Uh it's pretty pretty good. We're profitable. That I'll tell you. All right. What's your growth rate? We have two businesses. We have enterprise business that grows at about 50% and our consumer business relatively newer, you know, is growing very very rapidly over 100%. How much venture capital have you raised till date? Um think about 650 to 700 million dollars. And I don't think I've raised too much. I like to not I didn't ask you that. <laughs> well, I will tell you. Why do you think you were able to arrive at where you are today ahead of others? Even though you've taken a while to get there, but I still think you've arrived at you know this very unique position ahead of others. Why was that? Well, I think there were two or three pivotal moments in our journey. I think one pivotal journey, uh, pivotal moment was just about a year or two after we raised after we so-called became a unicorn because that got to our head um and we lost all our bearings and we went uh, a bit this wild. was when you raised 200 million yeah 2011 20 million i'm sorry from but the moment i i'm about to in my brain when i'm saying soft bank all millions get replaced <laughs> by billions i apologize for this 200 million uh, from soft bank yeah. and so we lost our bearings at that point of time didn't really understand what it meant to scale a company we were too young and i think we made bunch of mistakes we tried to fix it at that time we did uh and then we also made some uh we also had our own challenges in the way we were scaling the company from a business strategy point of view in 2016 and i would say that really taught us those two moments taught us a lot 
And I think what did the teachers, like if I were to just overtly simplify and summarize that, I would say one, uh, it told us that there is no, uh, there is, there is no second to being very disciplined about business, which meant, you know, operating a business like it should be and treating it with that respect so that you are just doing the most boring things every day, which was, you know, run a company profitably. Why should you not run a company profitably if you can? Uh, B, take care of your people. Uh, truly Sorry, before you move on to B, how long did it take you to arrive at this wisdom that do boring things every day and run a company profitably? One quarter. You get slapped big time, hit big time, and you realize that what was I smoking? Why did I not realize that my business metrics, if I just looked internally more deeply, and I think I, you know, it was a mistake as a CEO to say I didn't run the company the way it should have been run in 2013, 14, and 15, those three years, and I think I should have done a better job. And there is no taking away from the fact that I didn't do a good job to taking accolades of the fact that I fixed it in 2016. That is just post facto, but yeah, we did fix it. So yeah, it's a learning and I don't want to repeat it ever again in the sense that I don't want to get into that space ever again. So the run, I run the company very focused on core fundamental metrics, unit economics, cost in check, you know, just basics. Right? We don't buy we don't buy revenue, for example. They seem very obvious and simple, but that's one of the things we try to do. Uh, second was a big dimension around people. Um, we really changed our perspective around people and, um, you know, uh, try to do things very differently in terms of taking care of our people, trusting our people, really giving them a lot of opportunity to do things. Uh, and we coined a term internally which we, where we say, look, this is a family. And I didn't mean them in a manner of just speaking and putting it on, a, on the halls, but they actually were something, uh, on the walls, but they were actually things that we meant when you walked the halls of the company. Uh, but at the same time, we wanted to win. So it was a you know culture of family, yet you wanted to win, which meant we wanted to build the organization from intern inside, which meant that over a long period of time, we wanted people to take risks, uh, be at the deep end of the pool, give them opportunities before they think they're ready for it, and get them to do things that they couldn't believe that they could do. And that's worked really well for us. So today, when I run three or four companies, uh, within in Mobi, it's because there are leaders who can run these things independently today, and I don't have to necessarily be the one trying to do this. Um, and so, having a bench strength of leadership has been a big factor of success. The third one is there is capital does not create innovation; innovation creates innovation, which means that you have to put your head down and truly think about what a consumer needs, what's, what is it that you're creating which is different, and there is no shortcut to that. It'll take you as many experimentation and failures as it needs to, and once you get to the answer, you get to the answer. There is no PowerPoint or Excel sheet that can tell you how to get to the answer at what point of time. There is unpredictability, and we are okay with that ambiguity and, um, and unpredictability as an organization. So those three things I would say are things that we learned about five, six years ago, and I attribute a lot of what we are able to do today uh, to that. Now, that took us, yeah, that took us a few years to get to. Uh, but yeah, that I'm was pretty my happy. question, that for the number of years that you've been around, it was still late 
in in Moby's life that you arrived at that discipline and their understanding of. But having said that, well, there was nobody yeah. to see, right? Uh, we didn't have anybody to learn from, so that was one of the big challenges. Like you would look around and say, okay, who do I who do I pick this up from? You had companies that you could see which were on the previous generation, and I, you know, in my uh, arrogance, I thought, you know, we don't need to learn from them. Because we we're operate different. in a market of one. Yeah, we we're, we're different. We're like internet age companies, and that was absurd. That's not the case. It is you had to learn so much from them. Uh, I of course now do, but at that point of time, you know the valuations, the capital flowing through, you know people kind of just, you know rah rah about you. It's like well, that is this is it. I'm just I must be doing something, you know, so different from anybody else. So I think it took us time because there was no one. to tell us we were charting the path to a certain extent uh, of our own in our own world the the fog in front of us there was nobody else clearing it so we were clearing the fog everyone was disappointed when i did not go down the path of doing a phd and taking up something with potential at the indian institutes of technology this is you when you decided to become an entrepreneur um talking about your family yeah. which i understand has a lot of folks your parents other people in your family who are from the iits that's correct how has their view changed about you taking up a phd uh was becoming an entrepreneur my grandmother um till she was alive till very recently frankly uh was always um has always believed that education is the biggest uh Um, multi- force multiplier and it's the most abstract level of value creation you could do for the world and therefore they are, and and I have a history of people who have just done this and it was just amazing i didn't understand it at that point of time because i was you know when these conversations would happen at my home i wouldn't really understand it but i now see what they meant uh, and therefore they're pushed to essentially say go for that so that you could do something of that nature as it is in the blood frankly <laughs> it's not going anywhere i think she was she was a little disappointed i would say to begin with i don't think that was the case later on my father never got to see me what i did uh but uh, i think everybody else is pretty happy and how is does how does this transmit from you as a parent to your children well i think the there there is now you're getting into the philosophy of how we grew in what environment we grew versus what environment our children are growing our no, growth, not, it's not about the environment it's about you that's correct no. <laughs> but i'm saying when we were growing up you know our world was all about what our parents were going through was to say i must drive our children to safety and so we were being driven into a world of safety to say do a b and c you'll be secure because that was the only thing that mattered in those years you remember like it's only in post 90s where the the economy did start to grow and you could think differently about about stuff today when i look at this i say i say and i i felt one of the big changes that happened in me was the ability to take risk because i came from a middle class indian you know uh, society where risk was the thing that you never should never take but i think ability to take risk changed me and that was the departure from the previous generation to what i did now when i think about parenting i actually say i really don't know anymore because what i was being told not incorrectly 
was the was what they felt was the right thing to do uh, and i was correct i just think the world changed and therefore i had to look at different parameters of philosophies of of growth i just actually have no clue anymore having said that it doesn't change the fact that i will not impose some of the learnings that i have on my children knowing somewhat well that they will be obsolete by the time they get to a stage where they do something so i yeah i do try to tell them to take more risk uh Uh, you know to go for what they think that they should go for because i never did in my childhood i it was only much later where you know even today the last 4 5 6 years i go for what i think i should go for without thinking about the consequences of it as much and i think that's what i'm trying to tell them because maybe that was my failure as a you know or, or learning which came much later to me uh so i am imposing what i have learned on my children just like i was imposed upon by my parents and i don't know what else to do how old are your children 15 and 11 what if one of them were to decide at some point after they get into college to drop out to start oh, something on their it. own oh i would love it i hope they do <laughs> i hope they do i you know i've been nudging them to say can you just like not go to college uh but they think that that is weird like because everybody else is you know not saying that what's your view on not just choosing a career but succeeding at it well i think you should choose a career you have no control in succeeding in a career so i just think you should choose a career that's it whatever you think you want to do just choose it why so that why? changes a 20 year old or 22 year old is choosing a career without all the information in the world oh yeah that's right that's how it should be why do you I, say i that? actually don't i think people making these very informed decisions are probably not the right way to live a live a life uh and we just we just take too much pride in having data points and i think that is effectively a uh predictor of the past trying to project on the future but the future is unknown and if it is unknown then you have to let your something within you tell you what you need to choose and and therefore you will see people who will go with their gut to create and change world versus who will go by data points they will be great at scaling things that have already been discovered um and so therefore i think if uh, you know somebody were to choose a career choose a career you know you can't you can't choose success you're 44 today what advice would you give to a younger 20 something you that might possibly have allowed that 20 something to get to where you are faster than what you is there anything like that i would say huh it's an interesting question would i start earlier maybe would I would have started on this journey a little earlier maybe i would i would say say that um would i change much about this journey there is a part of me which wants to change some of the things where i failed but i also know those are the reasons why we get to where we are today so i think just i think here's what i'll say i fretted too much on success too much about success to begin with i don't do that anymore uh but i fret too much about like being successful 
you know, being better than the other company around me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is not a game of competition. This is, um, this is a thing about generational. So you can be fast or slow. It doesn't really matter. If you do it rightly, you will create gigantic impact in the world. Uh, who cares about three, four years here and there in this whole picture? Uh, so I think we are being, we become very myopic with time as a factor uh, because the world of startups is driven by venture capitalists who have a life cycle of seven years. So we think in those, uh, you know, seven to 10 year life cycle. But for people who are building good companies, you don't have to do that. You can just, just be at it. By seven to 10 years cycles, you mean that's the time they have to deploy their money and to get an exit and to return that money. And therefore, the companies that they invest in have to operate at a subset of that cycle. That is correct. And therefore, they ask you not to... They generally are not sitting there and saying, hey, can you build for 20 years? Because when you think about building for 20 years, when you are a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old... It does not process doesn't process. You have no idea. Like if at a 30-year-old me, you know, somebody said, hey, build for 20 years and here's how you should think about it. Well, that would have been so different. Uh, and it doesn't process because there is no one who is telling you, sitting you down and telling you that. Uh, and, you know, for example, most of my conversation with people today is to say, grow slow. This is like... Why do you say that? Because it's not sustainable. Fast scaling is not sustainable. Uh, blitz scaling Wait, is overrated. Didn't you just say your business is growing at 50 to 100%? That's correct. But it is not because I'm forcing it. If it happens, it happens. I, I was okay. There was a point of time a few years back, five, six years back, our business grew about 15%. And it was hard at that moment, but it was the right thing to do because the business actually became stable. It was unit economics positive. I, from there on, it'll just let it naturally grow was the point I was trying to make, or it's the point I tried to make. Um, when you say grow slow, you're in effect saying focus on the right things. Go and focus on the right things of the business, and then the business growth will take care of it because you've built a good product, you have a good go-to-market, you know, It'll grow at whether it has to grow at 35% or 65%. You have no control beyond a point of doing all the right things. But don't try and force a growth rate because the minute you try to do this, you do you build bad habits. Some of the bad habits being? Buying revenue, uh, driving a wrong culture, building uh, products that are not long-term. Many of those. Tell us about Glance. Glance, which is a unicorn today, um, started out as what's called a skunkworks project. A bunch of, if I'm not mistaken, a dozen employees at Inmobi working on an Android app. In the first year, which was in 2016, it had 30,000 downloads. The next year, it had 110,000 downloads. By 2019, it was at 26 million daily users. Tell us, how did this Skunkworks project come about? There was a, uh, there was just prior to this Skunkworks project, we had a belief that 
from an advertising point of view there will be there are these very large industries powerful consumer industries that are going to struggle for making high margins so whether it's retail whether it's the device manufacturers or the tele operators they are important consumer services but the business model has is very uh, uh tight and therefore they will require advertising as a business model to get injected into the primary business model in fact we did predict to say at some point of time advertising would take over the and become the primary business model which is happening in retail already with that thesis we went sorry can i just ask you to elaborate when you say advertising is is becoming the primary model in retail today if you take retail companies globally they are an advertising company they make more money through advertising than they make by selling products could you give us a few examples amazon is a greatest example of that you make more money uh because on on a net revenue basis you make more money because you have um uh, you, actually you take any of the uh commerce platforms you make more money by uh by retail ads than you make through selling products hey there this is rohan again popping in to say if you're liking the episode please go ahead and rate us on the app you're listening to us on this could be apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts are there guests you want us to feature or feedback to share write to us on podcasts at the ken.com that's p o d c a s t s at the rate t h e hyphen k e n dot com all right back to the conversation now how did the glance skunkwork projects come about so many you know few years before you know, the the glance project kicked off we had a thesis as an advertising company that large important consumer businesses like retail and device handset manufacturers or you know operators would need advertising to sustain their businesses because their business models were coming under pressure of margin little did we know at that point of time that in fact advertising would become the primary business model for some of these so jio is a great example where you know they make they at least from a business model point of view they want to make advertising led or services and advertising led model as the primary model on which telco will reside you know retail is a great example of that and amazon just posted you know gigantic you know ad revenues and you know somebody was telling me that 43% of their market cap is because of advertising so we tried we were trying to do this on the telcos oh sorry with the handset manufacturers and we were not succeeding and at that point of time somebody came up and said hey what if we did something on the lock screen and i was like you got to be kidding me you can never put an ad on a lock screen and so, why is that well if you put an ad on a lock screen i won't use the phone so if i won't use the phone i'm assuming customers won't use the phone and that didn't it wasn't going to fly and so we said okay then what should we do we said wait a second there is a possibility that this could convert into a content platform and that's when this whole thing started off saying okay why don't you guys try this out and see where it gets to so you know kind of gave them 6 months to try something they showed showed some success some customers showed hmm this is sounding interesting and he, that went on from there uh, before it took on this whole notion of saying hey there is this little uh, there is this interesting play of converting surfaces into smart surfaces just like operating system converted phones into smartphones because 
what it does is it gives you more computing computing power and intelligence to a to a you know, to something in this case we were giving that intelligence and computing power to a surface we were converting them to smart surfaces now of course in the beginning it didn't sound as sophisticated as what i just said because we had to do everything um and that's what glance is it basically starts off as a skunks project and has taken a yeah it's going to be pretty pretty large because we are on path to potentially be in the next 18 months to be on one, a billion handsets um across the globe and so a billion handsets across, across the globe will carry carry glance and you know we have had great support from the op, you know operating system manufacturers like android itself we work with firmware companies we work with chipset companies they are all excited about us converting a surface into a smart surface and now we are going getting to television how big is the glance team today i would say roughly about 700 800 people um yeah the last time we'd met you talked about glances each unique um i think an impression or That's like right. a card right like a card yeah and um, i think you said that we're clearing something like 1000 glances a day what, what is there a comparable number now how many glances are going out each day the, we we changed that metric because mm-hmm. at that point of time we were both a platform and a content mm-hmm. entity so we were putting our own content on our own platform because you know we didn't have better ways to do it today we don't necessarily look at it that way the way we think about this is how many third party developers are actually coming on to glance so that they leverage the platform and create content for consumers and consumers can then use it i'm pretty sure there is a glance number somewhere i just am not aware of it because i don't track it, track that number anymore how but what i track you... is to say mm-hmm. how many f- surfaces have we made smart surfaces so that's what i track so that's roughly sits at about 450 million today that's essentially devices devices yeah when we talked the last time in 2019 your concern was we don't want to glance is a a premium product and b it's a private product because an unlocked screen can be seen by anyone who's sitting around you so therefore we never want to open it up to user generated content and we want to do it ourselves that's correct and now you just said that you've along the way you've kind of step back and you're letting third party developers etc so how do you ensure like you know both of these statements are in sync that we want to do it ourselves back in 2019 and today you're saying that we will let others do it what's the change that's happened so we don't let ugc come in firstly and secondly when i say open up for third party it's not like oh, anybody can come in and do it it is through an invite process which means that we control which developer comes in and the quality of that developer is of pristine importance to us so if as a developer you do user generated content will not let you come on uh, you know you'll not be allowed in, onto glance so in many ways you're operating your own version of almost like the play store or the glance store uh as of right now we we have parameters that we define to say if you fulfill these parameters you'll be onboarded uh if you don't for example you know every let's take play store they they let's say say they've changed it right now but they used to say hey we don't want any gambling apps well you know those are the kind of things we don't want any any content that could not, that could hamper the user experience we can't let that come in so we have guidelines but we also are not so sophisticated today just to be honest that we can open it up completely and allow for everybody to come in we, the system won't be able to handle it so there is a is it a system problem or is it a conscious curation 
decision that the you want to keep. The first one is curation. Second is also to say it's not as if we will let like fifty thousand developers or hundred thousand developers come in, even if they kind of do that, because the system probably will not be ready for it for the next couple of years. It's interesting. You earlier talked about how in many product categories the profit margin has been collapsing because of competition and innovation. Interestingly, smartphones being one of those pieces. When you were building Glance, you'd essentially gone out and met some of the earliest smartphone makers and told them you could look at doubling your profit by working with us. How does that work? Uh, there were two things we told them. I think one was we'll mo- f- make your phones appear much better because we'll bring something on the on the lock screen. And second, we can help you significantly improve your profits. The second is first is certainly true, and second is also uh, on its way. So both are coming out. The way this works is you have a tie-up with smartphone makers and you share part of the revenue with them. That's correct. Which is largely just profit for them because they've already sold Absolutely. the phone. That's that correct. That improves That's their correct. profit margin. Yes. You'd also promise them very clearly that Glance wasn't an ad platform or a backdoor to display ads. That's correct. Was there any other reason other than the fact that users would not want to see ads as well? That's the only one. And we stay with that. What motivates and drives you every single day? I think we're just getting started. Um, you know, I feel very lucky that we have, have been able to get to this place wherever we have been, have been able to get. I am not willing to let this opportunity go by. I think we have, not just myself, but I think the whole team has an opportunity to create something very significant at a global scale. That motivation of putting India on a very true fundamental map drives us and we continue to create great products because of that. Why? Why is it so important that you're building from India? Uh, building from India. Or why uh, for, is why for yeah, well, building from <laughs> India. Why, why does India figure? I mean, it's not normally something that you hear. I mean, yes, a lot of entrepreneurs are building interesting companies. Why do you say that it's important for you to make a mark as an Indian company? You know, I have this image in my head. I'm pretty sure it's there in many people. When the Indian flag goes up in a sports arena and the national anthem plays, I don't think I have moments which are more where I feel more pride uh, or, you know, you have goosebumps and you have tears rolling out, even though you have no role to play except for being an Indian. And I think that feeling and that emotion drives many people. Uh, As a company, we do have an option, an opportunity also to build something globally. Um, therefore we go for it what makes you get up after you take a knock and you've taken quite a knocks few knocks along the way yeah uh, I think there there were two or three the first time the first time was pure need to survive this was well, M coach yeah. days. No, 
look, the MCOs days were more well were different because survival at well, you just had like you you had no nothing, you were nothing, right? It was just like, hey, let me not quit. So that was let me not quit phase. The survival. is like you've taken a knock but i am not going to die phase for yourself is to say i'm not going to go out like this this is like i want to go out on my own terms that feeling is allows you to continue to be at it for a while off late it's different off late I, we haven't had those that level of knocks for many many years so but of late you still have those lows but now it is to uh, believe that this is a journey and you know ups and downs are going to happen and i'm not in i'm not i'm not trying to prove anything to anybody and neither am i in a hurry so if you play the i we're not playing the long game and therefore the uh, you know the short innings here and there's you know don't matter anymore uh, and you play the long game have there ever been any times when you've considered shutting down in mobi starting a new company not doing anything for a while at any time during your like you know early years mid years darkest times has there ever been such a time never are you a goals or a journey motivated person you used to be goals and now it's journey what were some of your earlier goals like and what does your journey look like now you know you had a i actually didn't know I, the, the first goal was to raise a lot of money you did and then you realized that wait a second that i achieved it but why am i not happy then you go to the next one and you achieve that and you go to the next one so you keep achieving these goals and you realize you're on a treadmill and so you're never happy with any goal and one could say look not being happy with any goal is a great motivation to continue to create bigger and bigger goals but not living happily is not a great place to be at and so today i think the journey makes it um uh, makes it very um it puts you in a very good place to be able to make decisions without fear uh of failure without fear of being judged without fear of um you know proving yourself and therefore you actually on the contrary make bigger decisions because you're just part of this journey and you're not trying to get to a goal because when you try to get to a goal you optimize very differently and the human mind works to reduce failures versus increase the chances of success and i think over a period of time as that has shifted to a journey it's far more pleasant and apparently it's far bigger how do you convince your investors because you still have a lot of significant investors you've raised money from geo platforms you've raised money from google from mithril capital lots of other investors and investors may not always like you said investors see the world in a shorter horizon than entrepreneurs so how do you have these conversations with your investors when they are expecting something else and you're saying but i'm building for something much longer we have not reached a stage where 
the two seem to be in in orthogonal to each other i think it's your own state of mind where if you if your state of mind is a lot more relaxed and focused on a much bigger goal the goals that the investors would have you can actually achieve them because they they're not asking you for gigantic goals by the way frankly most most good investors ask you for a good good business and the good business can actually be achieved it is only when you try and go overboard on the good business is where you create bad practices of business which then catch up with you at some point of time so we are just very clear that we will not create any bad habits of building a business we'll just do it rightly and we are very honest with our investors also to say hey this is going to take extra year because this is how it it is uh i think the advantage of having run company for over 15 years or 15 years is that you can have very you know there are not that many people who have run a company for more than 15 years right so there is an advantage so you can tell an investor very honestly and in a very in a very constructive way to say this is the right path for it and they will actually agree with you because we do have a very solid track record of execution so it means that we do know how to build something and not just one but multiple things uh and that i think gets trusted by the investors there is this saying that you are the average of the five people you spend most time with who are the five people you spend the most time with um i spend a lot of time with my co-founders and uh, i if i am an average of that i'm doing really well like these guys are like phenomenal so your top 5 people with whom you spend time are all your co-founders uh, mostly they are my co-founders and my senior senior team and they are really really solid so if i'm an average of that then that's not a problem that's one but i actually may not completely agree with that statement Because what's again, your counter statement my counter statement is that there are a lot of people who you do not necessarily spend a lot of time with but they change your thinking in that one moment or in that one conversation so the part two of this is part one is i'm not completely disagreeing with the part two of this is who are that set of people that you end up talking to and it's not necessarily to do with my company's exact work but just talking about life and talking about what are they and how do you do this one of the advantages of <laughs> again running a company for 15 years you, i know a lot of people so i meet a lot of people a lot of people and uh, there is no agenda just to talk in those conversations you pick on something and that will just change the trajectory for you now it's not you don't know you can't predict but to me meeting that set of people who are significantly better than me in one dimension or the other is is the other big thing that i think really helps and that kind of comes back and we then talk within that group to say let's all elevate ourselves i want to talk about this screen zero strategy from a strategy point of view it's very interesting how the entire concept of the lock screen experience which you call screen zero um came up screen 1 being once you unlock it which is your home screen because it kind of seems to be at the intersection of various trends that were playing out one is of course the fact that the average user has 
dozens of apps installed on their phone, but they barely use more than five, six, seven, right? So which means most apps are not being used. The second is uh, the fact that, you know, I mean, what you've built is, is not an app. It doesn't go through the same mechanism of the Google App Store. You can't, you know, so you can't download it. Like, you know, you're not setting it up, etc. The third is, like you said, that every time someone picks up a phone, it's, you know, they're picking up what we were earlier thought was a locked dark phone. And so from a strategy point of view, what's really interesting is that this in some ways skirts the rules of the game or how people saw the smartphone game, right? You got to build a really successful app. You got to kind of get it published through the app platform. And the way instead you chose to partner with the OEMs, you chose to target the dark screen, etc. Do you see this? Like, you know, have you generalized this? Because this is something very powerful. Have you generalized this and tried to apply this in other aspects of what InMobi does, which is look at how the game is playing out and possibly try to rewrite the rules of the game by stepping back or creating a different field for yourself. But firstly, I mean, do you do you see this? I mean, you've built this, of course, you kind of see it, but still. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's how we see it. I thought the uh, it was staring on our face and nobody was doing anything about it. Um, I think it'll be one of the biggest consumption platforms in the years to come because it's you, a very I, I want to, I'm, I apologize for interrupting you there but when you said it was staring us in the face with the benefit of hindsight now we know that yeah but in general when you're operating in um, internet markets digital markets there are always rules and boundaries yeah. and our worldview is determined by how everyone else sees it how venture capitalists see it how competitors see it how entrepreneurs see it etc are there any mental models that you've come to rely on that, I mean, you tell your leaders, co-founders, employees, etc., that step back and look at things differently? Yeah, I think few. I think one is um, don't come and tell me a trend if it's written somewhere because it's not a trend, it's done. Second, you don't need an external validation for a unique idea you have to be convinced yourself. And third, let's just use first principles to figure out if this is the right thing to do and how we should go about it and we will back it and go for it. That's at least, and of course, when you're doing this, just think big so that we can really go for something quite significant. The sense that I've gotten is, it's very hard to break the mold of external validation for people in the world. They seek external validation to say, hey, oh, this company is saying that this is, then I should also do it. But by the fact that that company is saying they'll do it, they've, they've already spent two years. So you're already late in the game and technology cycles are three year cycles, right? At best. So you're, you're gonna come in to lose. So part of why I say that we, I feel we are being innovative as a company is we see, we see something which is not a trend, and we try to build it. It's not also to say, hey, this is, you know, whatever. This is already done in the US, and now we're going to try and this, do this in India. That's also not a trend. That's a 
you know, I know the model, I'm going to replicate it in India. And that's a perfectly good model. We just don't do it. So it's not a comment on the model, it's just that we don't do it. So we really like this, firstly, because it creates, if you're successful, it creates disproportionate market. It creates uh, a, a sense of achievement, which is of very high uh, very high nature by the team to say, look, we are creating something. And I truly believe if you want to put India on the map, you have to create things. You, you can't do it by not creating things. So creation is a big aspect of this. Let me give you another example to just uh, you know take this point further. When we acquired Roposo as a short video app and six months post that TikTok was shut down, every strategy playbook said, we should double down on short video. And we did exactly opposite to that. Can you explain that to us using the same first principles concepts that you talked about? How did you arrive at this contrarian decision? We said a few things. One, it is extremely hard for a short video app, for, for another short video app to be successful globally. That meant the short video opportunity was only India. A short video opportunity only in India, when you know everyone is going to go after it, meant that it's going to be a bloodbath for the next two years or so. Which meant with the market in India being weak in terms of advertising dollars, it's not going to be a great opportunity. From a revenue point of view. From Yeah, from sustaining the business point of view. And therefore, trying to go after that opportunity didn't make sense for us because it didn't touch a very big factor for us, which was, can this business be global? And therefore, we looked more deeply and said, what is that trend that we are seeing? Early signs, or we feel that there is an early sign. We felt live content, live stage, live is going to be a big thing. This in was playing out in China to a large it had extent. Play, it, it, it had started to play out in China, exactly correct. Um, and we picked it up way early. So when we acquired the short video platform, it was to say they have certain capabilities which are, which are required for live and we can actually do it. In hindsight, I, I say it in, in with a lot more accuracy and a lot more, you know, it was not as clean as it because, you know, the, the, the thing was still shaking to say, ha, huh, should we do it or not do it? But nonetheless, I think the hardest decision was when TikTok was shut down and then we said in a month or two to say we are not going to do this, we're going to actually go and, you know, build a different platform. That was a hard decision because everybody was knocking on your door to say, hey, can I put in like a few hundred million dollars? We just need to know which one of the four will succeed. And there were like three or four that got announced at that point of time. And we said, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to do this. Well, this makes no sense. You should do short video. And you kind of looked at this and said, but why? It's, it's, well, because don't you see what TikTok has done? Yes, you do. But do you realize what TikTok has built is not short video? They have built a cult. That is a very different product than just placing short videos. And I think... Building this live has taken us time and, you know, and we see staggering numbers uh, just in India, by the way, for, for example, if there is a, if there is a DJ that goes live on Roposo, 
he would have about you know 50 to 75 people in the uh, in the place that they're you know they're playing and on reposo in total they'll have about 500,000 people watching that's four five eden gardens full of people watching your eden gardens stadium in calcutta yes yes just, i, I, just, I, I, I just wanted to make sure your cricket your cr- lack of cricket knowledge does not come in the way of the point i was trying to drive Uh, I'm sorry, just joking. No, no, but, not at all. But, I spent two years in Calcutta, so I definitely know Eden Garden. There you are. But the, but you get the gist of it, right? So it's a different phenomena. And live is a lean forward consumption. It's an interactive consumption. It's a consumption where I think true entrepreneurs will get created in the in this creator economy because you have to perform. You have to perform for long time. and therefore in new what's the monetization model here there are two or three monetization models three so monetization models so let's take models. the dj example when this dj is performing and 500000 people are watching him or her there are three what's there, are, there are three uh, models two or three models one i as a user can basically ask for my playlist to be for my song to play next and you could ask for yours and i will end up trying to outbid you uh, so there is a model in which you can pay for your song to the gurgaon discotheque oh, live streamed <laughs> really okay i didn't know that but you could really really do right. you know a consumer can actually play pay to essentially get what their requests are to happen you could also do a lot of things that happen in other parts of the world like tipping you know you love a song so you tip the guy you know all of those things you could buy him a drink because you know he is in a bar you're not you could buy him a drink like so all of those things where a consumer does something second is uh where you actually do live advertising which means just like a live tv cricket tv match going on uh, a cricket match going on sorry uh, on tv there is a 30 seconds break you give 30 seconds break in between it's like yeah he actually says i'm going to go on a break for 30 seconds please watch this commercial so that i you know my i can continue to play uh that's your classical one i oversimplified it uh and the third one is you know he could actually if he's really good and he's using certain instruments he could say hey here are the instruments that i use it is actually sponsored by this specific company that i'm using and i would love if you guys could buy it the link is below so you have three models through which you could do this now all of this is very in, very deeply lean forward mechanisms of monetization uh we have tried two out of the three Uh, we haven't tried the third one yet but we'll see where this goes but these are models that will scale globally if you could go back in time and do one thing or change one thing what would that be Ugh. change one thing all right let's move on we'll come yeah, back to maybe that maybe nothing What is it that you feel you add most value to in Mobi as a CEO? Can you repeat the question? What is it that you feel you add most value to in Mobi as a CEO? The one thing that I think you do best as CEO. I think I have I am pretty good at pushing the envelope of what is possible and how it can be crazily imaginative so i am pretty good at that but i will add a second one which is equally important to me which is to hold the 
principal philosophy of our people at the same time what uh, is that what can you say just the principle our culture is very important so those are the two things that i how do you do the first it's there are two ways one can approach anything right one could say i could if for example if somebody comes to me and says hey here is what i think i could do i could ask the person to say okay what are the pitfalls the second is to say here is what i see is like okay can't you see something beyond this um and why aren't you trying to see that part of the world which i think you can see it but why aren't you pushing yourself to see that and the, most of the times there is a fear of failure that people sit with to say what if i fail and what you're trying to in effect do is to say don't worry about failure i got your back that's why i added the second dimension of the people philosophy because if you really want people to do some really you know something really well you have to take away the sense of failure the fear of failure from there because nobody succeeds when you when they fear failures and that when that starts to happen it's it's magical because people come up with like amazing things now of course that does not mean i don't worry about how will this thing fail and not succeed or get executed but that's the th- one thing that no or two things that i try to do what's your best kept secret you keep talking about people a lot what's your secret for finding great talented people i don't think i was i have a secret of finding talent i think i have a secret for unlocking talent there's a difference so for example i think everybody ha- is hugely talented either they don't know or the organization doesn't figure it out what is the right place for them to be unleashing themselves i think we have a very open approach to unlocking people and their capabilities and doesn't happen in all cases but in many many cases we've been able to do this because of which the person feels that they are growing not just linearly but non-linearly in our organization so i think that be our secret hmm but what about finding new people i i notice a lot of your conversations implicitly or explicitly refer to talent as already within the company but you also hire people yeah right so how do you find great talent i, I don't have any any secret sauce of finding great talent is it just talking uh, to a lot of people no i just think our culture pulls better people pulls more people within it because good people get attracted because our people who already exist get those get them so i don't think i have a great i we have a very good way of getting great people in but i think our secret is in unlocking people and it's by the way not just the opportunity dimension i think we have even gone down the path of you know getting our people uh uh deeply like we for example have hi- hired therapists uh psychotherapists in the company to work with every leader not just leader like work with like hundreds of people in the organization It's because every one of us no matter who we are have demons of our childhood and our past and our failures and you know that basically block us so how do you unlock everyone's capability to actually do 10x of what they feel at that point of time that they're doing so it is at a unit level focus on those people whether it is through therapy conversation working through therapists at at what point may i ask did you come across therapy as a four years ago it was uh, uh, somebody suggested that i should go through it to try and see how it will impact uh, my thinking 
it did magic. It was wonderful. And and since then, we increased that program to actually having, I think we have close to about 10 in the company now. And probably 500, 400, 500 people go through it. On a, like, it is like, like their job is to just work with teams and individuals to say everyone should be 10x of who you are. And it's not as a goal. It's just keep unlocking people. Their fears go away. They suddenly become beasts. Uh, over the last two years, we introduced another thing on top of it, which is because at some point therapy also taps out, is meditation at a company level to say, hey, let's like, you know, whoever is interested, let's take you through a meditation program because if you want to make big decisions in life, it's not just good enough that I go through meditation and I make great decisions. What's the point of just me making great decisions? What is the power of like few hundred people making great decisions? So, you know, we introduced those also as part of uh, part of our, uh, you know, things that we support big time. So, you know, I've really cut down on classical uh, things that used to be done and kind of really... Uh, on the people management side? On the people management. Very, very focused on unlocking the mind. And and the opening for that was when you yourself mm-hmm. yeah. tried out therapy. Yeah. Great. Before I move on from this section on um, people and talent, are there any great open-ended questions you ask people when you're meeting them, interviewing them, that you'd like to share with us? Because great open-ended questions are what they weight in gold. Most of the times when I ask, when I spend time with leaders, my question is, what do you see that others don't see? Now, it could be about the business. It could also be about themselves, that they think they can do, but others don't see, so therefore they don't go for it. But I spend a lot of time, and I fundamentally believe that if people can see things that others don't see, that unlocks non-linearity. Uh, so at scale, how do you do that is a, is a question that I I don't think I grapple with, but it's a thing that I'm trying to do. What's your span of control, Naveen? How many people do you have directly reporting to you? So let me try and answer that in two parts. I think one, there is an official reporting, and I don't really track that number too well. Uh, Give us a guesstimate before you move on from that, the official reporting. Even I if you don't track... 10, 12... Right. people or so, something like that. But I don't think that's the right way to think about this. You, of course, should have right org structures and whatnot. The span of control is a function of the people you interact with. Um, and if any of those people, whether for yourself or the one they are reporting into, if they are painful, no matter what structure you have and what span of control you have, it's not going to function. So I generally am a big believer that, you know, if you have a great team, your span of control has is immaterial. And you can have as many people coming into you and reporting into you. So I, I would argue that I may not have, you know, that many people, but I end up spending time with almost close to about 40 plus people in the company on a very regular basis, uh, whether one-on-one, small groups and whatnot. And they're all people who I discuss as if, as if they were my reportees. And it's not to say that, that, you know, they are reporting into me, but that's how I think of it. So you should have people who don't need daily hand holding. Isn't there a bit of a dichotomy there that how would people get to a level 
where they don't need hand holding unless they've had mentoring and hand holding along point. the way great point and therefore you have places for where people are uh, should be kept where they get all of the things that requires them to move to this level the question more was at our scale of the company uh, can we afford to have leaders who require hand holding that is is something that i don't believe in and i don't think that should be needed people leadership is is supposed to be very independent they should make their independent decisions and that's what we are trying to inculcate how many countries and time zones does your formal informal span of control extend to given that you operate across so many countries around the world a large portion of that is uh, is uh, across the us uh, and uh, southeast asia uh, or that belt of asia market so that's the biggest overlap today that that we have so why is that is that well because a, a, a large portion of our business is of course in the us so that's one big overlap second our consumer business actually has expanded in asia first so therefore the asian markets really become very important to us so therefore you know we live in an odd time zone world um, but it's mostly the us and the asian markets that we have to cater to asia is not that hard because it's pretty close to our time zone hmm i like to also talk about the role of luck and timing in success um for example the exit of tiktok it it did a lot of things like to the indian ecosystem even though you did not like like you said earlier copy what they were doing is that something that you've seen play out because over your 15 years where sometimes you could be too early to a trend and sometimes you could be late to a trend so sometimes they just right like and it looks to us that glance the year it was formed like you know when you raised your money 2019 was a great time to have been building there of course a lot of things led up to that oh yeah you you can't even underestimate the power of luck in in any journeys let alone an entrepreneurial journey um i could i would not even be able to recount all the number of small events that have led to these large things that have happened for us uh whether it is you know a random bump into somebody that led to softbank investing into us in delhi some place which basically i had no clue that the person talking to me across the table was from softbank and you know i didn't even know what softbank was by the way and and then they say hey you know we want to do this so it's utter luck uh or uh, you know glance actually being able to get launched because you know there is always a world where you know it may not have launched and you know it did launch with with few handset manufacturers who took the bet with us so i i, I think luck plays a big 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 role in all of these things as we speak yeah we do put down the strategies and we do all the right things but you know we wait for the luck to happen you raised a lot of funds you said somewhere between 600 and 700 million dollars the very first funding that you raised was I think half a million dollars from Mumbai Angels in 2006 when you started M Coach. You raised 200 million dollars from SoftBank in 2011. You raised 200 million dollars from Jio in 2022. So clearly you've 
been there done Clearly that you want to say that i can't raise more than 200 million <laughs> is that what you were trying to get to <laughs> not really I, my question really was what are the biggest learnings from your unsuccessful attempts at fundraising because what i'm describing is only the ones yeah, yeah. that you succeeded at i'm sure there were many where you did not succeed at yeah uh there was a point of time when uh for the ad business we we thought we should raise money and uh, we weren't able to um and it we didn't see the writing on the wall to say the business re- the investors expected the business to be run profitably to run diligently we didn't see that sign we thought you know you could still be in that cycle of raising capital so i think one big learning is to be able to predict far earlier before the investors turn their and it's called the investor sentiment but it's mostly to say hey we expect this industry to now make money that's pretty much what they're trying to say which is correct we just like we are in this world of raising capital that you forget that you know the the industry has reached a certain level of mid maturity that you should have a sustainable business model right so i think that's one big learning that's come out of it second we have had you know when we were trying to raise for glance first time we had many unsuccessful conversations many numerous which not to say that didn't have it for for inmobi but for glance we certainly had it at least at the time of glance it was more to say we have you know success and so we know what we are trying to do yet we weren't able to raise capital easily uh in the beginning and the reason was the model was so different from anything else that they'd seen there were that no comparables there were no comparables so therefore nobody was able to put it in some uh, excel sheet excel sheet or uh, some template and i think that's where you know uh, ajay royan who is you know uh, mithril capitals uh, you know founding partner uh, was phenomenal because he's a contrarian uh, and looks at things from a first principle point of view and we really hit it off because he's like wait a second this seems to be this could be a rage if we get it right and you know of course there are you know ifs and buts attached to it at the time he would put in the money so you have to realize that you cannot get uh dissuaded by a lot of the investors who just look at the model and say what is that fitting a template or not or is that fitting my theme of where i want to invest and you should just you hope to find that one or two investors who who will see your world view in the way you want to show it to them i'm pretty sure that's true for most companies because you know you know unless until you're in a sector which is considered hot which has its own challenges but if considered a sector which is considered hot you know you would have most investors kind of like not actually agree to what you're really trying to do so we feel pretty happy about the fact that we were able to find few people uh, third i would say i have increasingly find found a lot of value in strategics strategic investors uh if done rightly geo is an amazing partner to us uh, google is a great partner to us uh and we find that strategic uh, investors being companies that operate in the space but also invest out of their that, own balance sheet that's correct plus they also give you you know if done well they'll also you know create help create business for you uh and i think if you look at again if you kind of go step back or outside the startup world or the or this you would see some of the most traditional companies they either raise capital from public markets and or they do these giant partnerships with one another 
and they build business over a five year period and then they build and scale and scale and scale. I think strategic partnerships and ability to manage those partnerships is a if done rightly could be hugely valuable for for startups. So that was the third thing that we learned uh, in our process of capital raise. It's very interesting that you should say that because as a lay observer of the default venture funded like you know model around startups there's a certain zero sum thinking uh, that permeates which is essentially if i raise more money i can build my own business and this is my own platform and i don't want to share it and the entire thing that you're talking about strategics is not necessarily based on zero sum thinking it is can we both grow i'll promote you i'll help you and we'll both grow and if you look at the kind of place where india is today where you have sure you've got like some great platforms like geo or google or facebook but there's also the reality that by a lot of estimates many of which we've covered there's a certain plateauing of the overall market so that zero sum thinking kind of breaks down but if you're looking at strategic partnerships so the model that you're talking of perhaps is something that we need to be seeing more of but i wonder does the vc model kind of so it it doesn't play well to that does it do you see no uh, i i actually don't see that many people thinking about it that deeply few reasons one um if you are working if you are trying to build in a small market uh and i, re- I think of india as a small market a relatively small market then you would say okay let me just do it myself because it's faster to do it uh if you really are going for something much bigger like we try to go for a global market there is impo- it's impossible for you to go and do it all by yourself for example i could have argued in a op- in a <laughs> in a world view to say let me create a glance phone are you kidding me you know there is like x billion phones out there is that exactly part- what amazon tried to do there you are like with an, the tablet and a company that the fire tablet yeah. which was ad supported yeah. and then they finally killed that that's correct right it's just hard right so uh i think people underestimate the power of enterprise partnerships and enterprise partnerships are slow relative to what we believe or startup world believes paces but what they what people are missing in that is even if it's slow it is such giant leaps that you fast forward 4 years you're 4 or 5x larger than what you would have been able to do just by yourself uh yeah the first year or maybe two is going to be slow uh and i think uh people people are not not necessarily looking at it that way now third i don't think it's in vc vcs don't necessarily uh back those models uh, uh, don't necessarily promote those partnerships um because they look at those guys as ones where they can sell into sell their asset to so they don't want them to do investments uh i think you know that's not the answer uh i think the answer is you got to like if you want to make it big you got to like you got to figure out how to like partner with the elephants what are the top two failures you've you feel inmobi has made it could either be missteps or missed opportunities two i think one is uh, big ones 
2013, we made a mistake in how we managed people. Mismanagement of people was a big aspect of us. Uh, we grew from 200 to 800 people in a matter of a year. We treated people like commodities. I'm paying you a lot of money, you must work. You know, that kind of a, you know, um, mentality. This was post the soft bank funding. Yeah. So you had a lot of money in the bank. A lot of money, ambition. you have a lot of press, everybody is flocking. You're like, I'm the king. And that's not how it works. You got to be humble and you got to, you, you know, so we were thrown on the ground. So you kind of get up, dust yourself off and, you know, have some humility to what amazing people bring to the table and you, you know, bow down to that a little bit. That was one. Second was we, uh, we tried to, we tried to essentially continue to grow the business in an unsustainable manner because that was the theme that we were seeing in the in the market out there and that time few models were getting invested into this is 2016 and not that time period we thought that is the answer to it uh, only to realize that different industries have different cycles at which they will basically not be funded anymore uh, and therefore we were, we made wrong business decisions for almost a year to continue to grow unsustainably uh, only to come back and really change our playbook to hopefully be more sustainable uh, and there was a there was a minor event in that which is uh, which is small in the larger scheme of thing but big in our own terms we launched a platform called meep the green monkey and it was a spectacular failure because of that headline that one headline which one headline yeah that's exactly the one that you said the green monkey uh, yeah and it was not <laughs> but it was termed in new york times headline everything in the text was correct the headline just said the monkey killed the product now what was the learning the product was you could be you could shop yeah from any and it was a assistant okay so Two it was learnings. like microsoft clippy 2.0 <laughs> yeah, much more advanced, much more advanced. I'm pulling but, your leg now. <laughs> but uh, here's what happened. Like we came out with that product too early and we used marketing as a way to drive the adoption versus product metrics to drive the adoption. We thought we will just go overboard and, you know, drive adoption for something like you that. had a global and, launch. Yeah. You flew would, people all the way up. Yeah, and, and it didn't work out for us. You've said in the past that sometimes you have to make decisions with 10% of the available information because if you had 100%, then decision-making would be very easy. What kind of first principles or mental models do you look at when you're making decisions using just 10% of information? All big and important decisions are made with limited data, very, very limited data. The earlier you can make a date, the earlier you can make a decision, the higher the alpha is, uh, the higher the the gain is for you, the higher the ahead of the curve you would be from anybody else. And so you can choose how comfortable you are at what level and what, you know, goes back to what I was saying earlier. Are you one of those who can see what others can't see? If I have 100% data, then hopefully everybody is seeing it. That's not a time to make any decision. Is it at 80%? Is it at 50%? Is it at 10%? Then, you know, if you can make more successful decisions with 10% signaling, 
data, 10% data, then you will be more often than not far more successful uh, than otherwise. You've spoken earlier about the difference between intent-based purchases and impulse-based purchases. What have you understood about Indian consumers in this context? Every one of us has uh, both sides of it. There is no, there is, it's same across the globe, by the way. Uh, Intent-driven commerce is what we are all used to. And I want to buy something, I go yeah. searching for it, or I open a site for it and decide to buy it. That's correct, right? Black t-shirt, boom, 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 I get it. But a bigger pie is actually inspiration-based commerce. Uh, much bigger pie is an inspiration-based commerce. That's how the bazaars work, right? The bazaar, the reason why there was a baz- there has been a bazaar for hundreds of years is because I go in and I see things and I get inspired and I buy them. I do go to the bazaar with an intent also, but the intent to inspiration ratio is, is you know, 20-80. You actually buy 80% of your products through inspiration and only 20% through intent. Think about your own shopping experience where you would walk into a mall, but walk out with like 10 bags. You didn't go in saying, I am going to buy 10 bags worth of like things. So inspirational, inspiration-based commerce Inspiration-based anything is not very well developed on the internet today because structured information data structures allow you to essentially be a lot more intent-driven and therefore that that has taken off first. I think shop attainment, for example, um, or entertainment-based shopping or live shopping that we are trying to do in Reposo is is a multi-trillion dollar economy uh, from a shopping perspective over the next few years. And you cannot be both, by the way. It's hard to be both intent and inspiration in the same thing. Because you come there either to say, I am built on intent or I'm built on inspiration. You can't be built on both. That doesn't make any sense. You have to have a primary. So yeah, we are going for... Is this taking us back to the days of late night TV infomercials where something's going on? Like Fundamentally, why is that? But that was bad. That's not inspiration. Bad production or just bad because... No, it was both bad production, bad products. It it had a very different performance component to it to say, I'm going to get these cheap products. I'm going to basically do something. I'm just going to sell off something. It's a very profitable model. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think that's inspiration. Uh, but is it a are those seeds of inspiration? Yes, that's where it does start. But I think this true seed of inspiration is when you walk into a bazaar and you see stuff. That's your true inspiration. So it's not taking you back anywhere. It's taking you where you are today. It's just not there on the internet. Uh, I'd like to hear you talk about the rise of D two C brands uh, because that's a very significant trend that's been playing out for a while now, which directly connects back to some of the stuff that you talked about, impulsive purchases. Your platform uh, has some of these brands like, I don't know how you pronounce it, is it DCRAF or DCRAF? DCRAF. Yeah, DCRAF and AIC. What's been your learning about the consumer behavior around? Because the way we thought of brands has changed. It's no longer this is a brand which advertises and therefore I trust its reputation. But it's like, I know this before, this is a celebrity 
and the celebrities selling me their brand should i buy it what consumer behavior have you observed around this i think since the 70s and the 80s there was a notion of well there was a notion of no brands and you basically had no concept of brands then came the concept of brands and the concept of brands were the so called iconic brands of today that you and i and you know everybody in this room would actually be having the same brands and therefore there was no differentiation but the differentiation was between you and i having no brand versus having a brand fast forward the world a little bit you now have a world where everybody has an identity of their own uh, we didn't necessarily when we were growing up necessarily didn't look for an individualistic identity of ourselves but today's youth millennial are really seeking what do i stand for they have a strong viewpoint on climate they have a strong viewpoint on you know you know vegan or not being vegan you know their their inclinations towards everything therefore when it comes to product that they want to choose they want to have a very they, they want to have clarity on what are they associating themselves with that association is not necessarily fulfilled by these broad based brands that exist today of course they are also now trying to get into their these niche areas of you know fulfilling micro subcultures uh, you know of our society we, we never had micro subcultures we had a culture you know and and these micro subcultures are being fulfilled by these d2c brands and therefore they are very niche they target a certain segment of people it could just be people who love you know uh, you know who i don't know who love to walk barefoot just making this up but they love to walk wear barefoot and i am i have products for them now that could just be like a million people in the world but they'll pay crazy amounts for that specific you know uh, set of products so i i just think that's the rise of d2c uh where you where you are able to connect to a certain audience very deeply and that audience is seeking to say help me define my identity in a way that i think is mine there is also this certain explosion and almost loss of i think sense of scale around brands because of the explosion of d2c uh, if you go to for instance i mean you said that it's hard for a platform to mix intent and impulse but i think if you go to let's say an amazon and if you search for a particular product you get essentially pages after pages of what are d2c brands so what a brand represented earlier i mean in this mid period that you said was someone who's probably invested in marketing and in production and in quality and in customer service to create a product but this d2c explosion has also created dramatically increased the set of quote unquote brands not all of who invest in those same things customer service production quality etc so from a consumer experience point of view where does this lead oh yeah that's absolutely correct that leads to bad consumer experience which means those brands will not survive i think we're talking of two different things here one is to say hey why should d2c brands exist there was a reason for that how should a d2c brand scale up you have to focus on the on, on all the right things uh and consumer experience is a big part of it so there will again be a shake out and then some will emerge out of it it's like it's already happening cycles. it's already happening right there you know i somebody was mentioning to me like 300 400 d2c brands in india but we only know of 10 maybe 
pretty sure you can you you guys have more data on it than me but that's pretty much what's happening so that means some people are doing a good job end to end of it uh, and some are not we'll try to hurry up because we've got about 10 minutes left in our conversation so i'm going to ask you faster questions now what phrases are you known for repeating the most inside in movie oh god um i i do end up using this thing when i do product reviews which is maza nahi aaya and uh, this was no fun yeah this was no fun like this is not it um and i use that either i would say i love it or i would say maza nahi aaya those are the only two things i would say right my next question would have been what's the one line your team dreads hearing from you i'm assuming it's mazani hai yeah it's something on those lines yeah what are the most common three objectives that your colleagues co-founders leaders might use to describe you okay you're asking me to do self uh like, oh you've been to therapy you're a huge <laughs> advocate of i therapy. shouldn't have a problem in in expressing my own that's right self a little better all right you got back to me um i would say um something around vision and big thinking that be all right big thinker uh, visionary yeah something on those lines all right uh i would say the second one is trusting um beyond normal realms of you know trusting people hmm third one would be a easy easy going uh, yeah okay all easy right. to be with all right uh, it was more to say i hope that's what they will say <laughs> <laughs> well there'll be a feedback loop when they they'll tell you i i might get some memes like being thrown at me in office <laughs> but we'll see office or work from home office what does a productive day look like that makes you feel satisfied and happy at the end of it no meetings just like being myself what does that mean when just when you like have a no meeting think, day what do you do that just think just think just sit and think nothing else do you doodle do you take notes yes i write what part of your job do you wish you didn't have to do compensation conversation <laughs> all right have you changed your mind about anything when it comes to managing people something yes. you believed in what is that um i used to be given my training at mckinsey and business school whatever i used to be a very structured guy i would believe in structures in a structure and over the last several years i've realized the big power much bigger power is in creativity which has no structure to it so how do you unleash creativity and yet have structure so what is primary right so is primary structure or creativity so i have flipped to making creativity far more primary in my way of i deal with people what happens is creative people come across not necessarily very structured in broader and bigger conversations so their thoughts and ideas get 
pulled down very easily by people who who can structure the shit out of it uh, you can beep that out if you want <laughs> uh but i just think the i think how do you harness people who bring creativity is a big aspect what's your most reliable method to learn new things talk to people talk to variety of people not necessarily like just talk to people and and do you have any method and read can <laughs> <laughs> i just put that in <laughs> do you have a method to teach others new ideas when you're you know someone in your company or like you know direct reports etc like you know you know something there are things obviously you will always know more than others by virtue of having been around for 15 years being a founder and ceo and you want to kind of teach and imbibe it to others is there a method that you prefer yeah i i have a very direct way of you know conversation which is a lot to do with pushing people uh beyond their boundaries in terms of imagining things where they were not they were like holding back because as i said earlier i think people deal with most people suffer most smart people suffer with fear of failure because they were smart right and they have been smart and then since their childhood they've been smart so they've been like scoring really well now they don't they want to like still continue to do that so the only way you could score really well is not to not score well which means that you don't really go for it so how do you get people to go for it uh, and therefore you push people on one hand and you give them a a life jacket on the other is uh, is a big aspect of what i try to do what's something that everyone around you is probably not telling you i hope that's not the case only the only reason i say is i have people with who have spent a lot of time with us uh, with me uh, like right. you know 10 to 15 years so what's the best time or method to give feedback to you about something that you've done any time so you yeah oh. yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. i by the way that one of the other aspects of the first previous question mm-hmm. on this one because you have people who worked with you 10 15 years they don't they don't hold back they tell you right as painful has parenting taught you something about yourself yeah that i am impatient um and i think uh, there must be a record because every single person that i've interviewed on the show <laughs> asked this question has said the exact same thing but of course you know, n plus plus no but it is so true because you know you 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 live in this world I where agree. people do listen to you i agree i'm a parent and so th- so there is of course that big aspect of it which is impatience i think how can i hold back i'm not yet being able to do like how do i hold back in like telling something like how 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 can i let it be um and i think i to think to not I'm, intervene to not intervene and i think i am becoming better at it in work but not as good as it of it in at the parenting which therefore which leads perfectly well to my next question how would you rate your own performance as a parent and as a ceo on a scale of 1 to 10 <laughs> oh god oh if you ask my children they'll say you're like you're doing quite bad uh they give me feedback so i get it oh you have to rate your own performance i have to rate my own yeah. I, i'm pretty low on i What? would say like whatever six maybe all right and as a ceo i'm pretty good at that pretty Put a number to it i don't know 9 or 10 all right now 
are there things that you do that others might find quirky weird habits habits things, hobbies uh, weird habits right there's nothing that's fine uh, maybe not i don't know if you were locked in a room for 24 hours i'm still with no think, internet i'm still pondering of your previous oh, question quirky habits quirky habits Anyway, if it'll come to me, I'll tell you. Anyway, <laughs> go for it. If we locked you in a room for twenty-four hours with no internet, what would you do? Meditate and write. All right. Six out of ten times when you are out eating, what will you order? Dal roti. What does personal time look like for you on the weekends? Uh, what do you do? I mean, if if someone said that, like, this is your personal time. It's a weekend. It's a Saturday or a Sunday. What would you want to do by default? It's the best thinking time for me. So I actually I love my work. So I just continue to do it. Um, that's one. Second is I go meet people because especially in a city like Bangalore, it's hard to meet people on weekdays as <laughs> because of the traffic issues. So you meet some people. Please don't uh, defame Bangalore. <laughs> uh, with the amazing infrastructure, it's so hard. But yeah, I think that's the uh, that's those are the two things. All right. On a scale of one to ten, how happy are you with your life? Very, very happy. Ten. On a scale of one to ten, ten. All right, great. Which morning of the week do you Monday. look forward to the most? Why is that? I'm just I just want to go. I just I'm <laughs> raring to go to office. It's like that's it. I do have you, like six days, five days to do like a lot of stuff. Right. Do you read books a lot? No. All right. What's the last thing that you totally geeked out on? That you know you got into something and then you totally geeked out on, which is not work. Tesla. Ah, all right. That's it, Naveen. I think uh, we had a great conversation, and you've been a sport with your responses. Thanks a lot. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Enjoyed this. And that was the interview. If you've made it this far, I would love to hear what you thought of the conversation. What did you love? What did we miss? What would make these episodes even better? Write to us at podcasts at theken.com. That's p o d c a s t s at theken.com. I'll see you again soon.